And now, coming to you from the Waldorf room, high atop the Crude Street Motel 6, it's the Crude Street Podcast, suffering from jet lag and stumbling home. Morning, Gary. I'm actually perfectly fine, Jonathan. I'm feeling great. I've <laughs> got my glass of wine here. Oh, I've since I got back, but I didn't have to fly through, the, through Dubai to get home either. Dubai was the good option. It took me like 400 years. And I don't think I've ever been as knocked around by jet lag in my life as I am on this trip. I don't know I why. But we were talking before you left, and we haven't, uh, despite the fact we actually got to spend most of a week together, I don't think I got a chance to ask you if Dubai was as William Gibson-ish as we all suspected it would be. Well, we were in a hotel a little bit outside of downtown Dubai, so we didn't see much of the real heart of Dubai, unfortunately. We, you know, we were on the other side of a harbor. You could look across these old wooden dows that were moving all the, the freight around. And I've never seen so many wooden uh, you know, ships in my life. Never. I didn't see a single non-wooden ship, in fact, hmm. uh, doing all of the moving freight around. But in the distance, you could see the Burj Khalifa, which mm-hmm. is, of course, the world's tallest building. And from a distance, through the, the, the dusty haze of a Dubai sky, it looked like the dark tower out of Stephen King's books. So it's, I think it's actually, it's funny. It, it's, it's an odd mix of a surreally fantastic landscape and a deeply Blade Runner landscape. Because when you drive through it at night, yeah, it's a really Blade Runner landscape. Surreal yeah. place. Very strange. I mean, sounds, and, and, sorry, yeah. Well, I mean, no, as I was saying to you at the time, I, uh, I, I don't envy the length of your trip, but I envy the fact that you have to go to Dubai because Dubai is the sort of place I would only want to go to if I have to. I think so. But I would want to have to. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. I would need to be made to go to Dubai. Though I have to say, now that I've been, and I was kind of, I was a little concerned about it, just because it's the Middle East. I've never been to the Middle East before. What would it be like? It was easier transiting the Middle East than it is the United States. More Some pleasurable, more pleasurable, less stressful. They gave us chocolates as a gift at the airport from customs. Hmm. Whereas, inevitably, through no fault of my dear North American f- friends, when you go to um, a North American airport, it's stressful. Everyone is stressed. It's equal stressful for them to live here. Yeah. And even coming, even coming back from Toronto, which was, of course, the World Fantasy Convention, which we're about to talk about, um, and you go through customs in Toronto, so there are two enormously long lines, uh, and you realize... These lines are not there because of Canadians. They're there because of Americans. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, which was kind of weird, um, particularly given, given the time of year. It was interesting that we were at World Fantasy at the same time as the elections were on and all those mm-hmm. other sorts of things. I, I guess since, since we're, we're umming and eyeing and wondering, wondering about where we're going to start, I guess the first thing I'd like to do is take my hat off to Peter Hallatz and the committee that ran World Fantasy this year, because whilst I don't think it was quite the best World Fantasy I've ever been to, it was certainly a very good one. Yeah, I don't necessarily compare World Fantasies one to the other, because they all have different kinds of charms. The, mm-hmm. uh, you, you get the small town turn-of-the-century atmosphere a few years ago in Saratoga Springs. Uh, you get a kind of really um, um, Midwestern flavor to Columbus, Ohio. I didn't make yep. one in San Diego. 
but I figured the one in San Diego was a little bit like the one in San Jose. And the, the, this one, the problem, the only problem this one yeah. had was you, you didn't get that sense of regional flavor. We were essentially in a suburb. But in terms of dude, programming... Dude, dude, terms, dude, we were like in a distant country. I mean, this is the first thing. I mean, if we're going to talk about it, the, the convention was great, mm-hmm. but Toronto was over the curvature of the earth. You couldn't see the skyline. I... I was on the eighth floor, and when you went up to the ninth floor, you could actually see a skyline. So if I was 90 feet tall, I could see it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But in in, in terms of the layout of the hotel, it had a nice open bar area. There were people – the sense I had, and part of this had to do with with Sandy, with the hurricane, is that there was a a kind of communal sense of survival among the people from the east coast uh, of the United States who did make it there. And it was a very the, – the tone of the convention, apart, apart from the hotel, apart from the venue, apart from the programming, the tone struck me as being very um, – I don't know. People were being kind to one another. It was a very people cordial convention. Making, but, but World Fantasy, I find, usually is. I mean it's usually a, a fairly professional convention, uh, as people would know because we've talked about it here before. It's also, I think – one that's very much centered around the bar. The bar at this convention was a good one without being a great one. I think it was a bit small mm-hmm. and a little bit understaffed, which is often the case with these things. Terribly. Yeah. Uh, and doesn't compare to the great bars of the past, like the San Jose Bar or the Columbus, Ohio Bar, which are both great bars. Uh, however, okay. aren't we terrible? Okay. Listen to us. You're talking you're talking about the great bars of world's fantasy conventions as though it were a coffee table book. It should be. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> I love that. Or at least a, a glossy thing so you could give it to people who are going to run world fantasy and say, you know, this is what you need. If you can't sit down 100 people constantly drinking and they can't serve alcohol that fast, they're not good enough. Well, that's true. Uh, but well, to- one of the one of the endemic things of world fantasy and it was I think Columbus was unusual this way, and San Jose may have been. The hotels never expect the amount of business they're getting. They are used to conventions where a few yeah. people gather. They're not used to having 500 people in the bar ordering drinks at the same time with, with maybe one bartender and one server. That's right. Their entire metric for how, that, how they assess a world fantasy uh, convention or a convention is different because – no matter how many times you say it, and it's apocryphal. Anybody who goes to these conventions regularly tell always tells the same story. The convention never understands. They never take it seriously, mm-hmm. or the hotel doesn't, not the convention, um, right. because they just they're just, just not used to the idea that people don't go to Toronto or they don't go to anything else. They come to the the convention, they stay in the hotel the whole time, and they talk and they drink. That that that's mm-hmm. that's that's the spectator sport at World Fantasy: talking and drinking. Which is fantastic, but... You know. It is, and, and, and it brings me back to the point I was making, which yes. is that I thought the tone of the convention, you're right, the tone of these conventions are always very cordial. This, and it, I don't know whether this had to do with uh, with, with Peter Hallis, uh, with the programming, uh, with, with the guests of honor, because there's a great deal of affection in our community toward uh, both John Clute and Liz Hand. Yep. Um, and, and the sense I got of people who I had not met before, like Lavi Tidar, uh, all had the same kind of generous spirit about them, it yep. seems to me. Uh, and I thought that was uh, – it was enforced – it came across in the panels I was on. It was – well, let me give you a specific example of, 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 of that because I, as you know, had to give a little talk at the banquet. Yeah. Now, if I was to give a talk at a banquet of a world 
science fiction convention, I would be really nervous because it's it's a it's a commun it's a it's a collection of communities. It's a gaggle of people who many of whom wouldn't get my jokes, many of whom would think their jokes are outdated, yep. many of whom would uh, when you talk to the world fantasy, there's a there was a sense of warmth in that room during the banquet, where it's I think it had nothing to do with me. I think any of us could have got up and talked for 20 minutes and gotten a warm reception because the feeling in the room was was warm. I think that's mostly true, Gary. Though I think you probably underestimate the job you did, which was a very good one, because whilst I think the crowd would be receptive, that doesn't mean you'd be successful. I think to be su successful, you actually have to be interesting and amusing and whatever else. And you were all those things. You were terrific. Well, thank you. But you, but you know, that works partly because you get a sense from the audience that they want to have a good time. And if once, once, once they're in that mood. I, I think there's that. The other thing that I think makes it a very um, friendly convention is there tends to be a core population that comes back again and again. It shifts a little bit. It changes a little bit. But generally, when you look out across the room from the stage, you're not dealing with a bunch of people you don't know. Whereas, I mean, I've stood on a world fan, a Worldcon stage, as you have, mm -hmm. and you look out into the dark at a 1,000 or 2,000 people, most of whom you don't know, and it can be a little bit intimidating, whereas the world fantasy crowd generally, you, you know, you know the majority of them. I think that's true. I think it's, it, it seems like more of a single community. It's more of a, a monovalent community, let's say, in the sense that even though people are writing a lot of different things um, – there are science fiction writers there. There are horror writers. There are steampunk writers. There are urban romance writers. There, there, there are a lot of potential. There's a lot of potential in world fantasy for creating cliques and subgroups and so forth. Yes. It doesn't seem to. Ha it doesn't seem to happen in the way it does at, uh, at Worldcon. Partly because it's not large enough. I think that's true. I think it's not large enough to really spread out and create new communities or subcommunities to the main community too much. I mean, that said, there are, you know, like groups and it all comes down. And to, to, in my mind, the, the success of any convention is that you have to have your own posse to hang out with. If you don't have that, then it's never as much fun. Well, I, I, I judge conventions by a couple of things. One is having your own posse. You want to see your friends. I mean, as, as we've talked about many times, this is the one time per year we get to see each other. It is, yes. And we get to see Liza and we get to see the people that we always see at these things, Peter's job. Graham Joyce, I only get to see at these things. Yep. Uh, a guy K, we only get to see it uh, at, at, at venues like this. But at the same time, I wrote in from the airport with Patricia Briggs, mm -hmm. who I have not read and probably won't, but who's a perfectly delightful person and apparently does what she does very well. Yep. And it's nice to it's nice to broaden your contacts into that part of the world. I would I'm curious about her novels now in a way I wasn't before. Cool. I've heard good things about them. Um, yeah. I have to say that, I mean, from my mind, uh, from, from my experience, my own experience at the convention was it was a very social convention. Um, I got to see a lot of old friends and make, meet new ones. Had a fantastic conversations before the convention with Peter Watts and with Guy Kay. I'd love to have Peter Watts on the podcast sometime. Um, and then the convention was just very busy as they always are. It was great seeing yep. old friends. It was great spending time with uh, our mutual boss, Liza, from Locus to catch up. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the one thing I didn't do was go to programming because I don't ever go to programming. I, I did break down and relent, Gary, though. I, I, I wrecked a years-long record for you. I actually went to the opening ceremony, Gary. Well, and my my... My favorite to you in response for doing that was to make it 15 minutes long. 
<laughs> and I still left before it finished. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of well, the thing is, this is one of the things you learn being a Toastmaster is that um, I guess I, I learned I had to be at the opening ceremonies. I had to open the convention. Yeah. Having never been to one, I never was really aware that there was an opening ceremony <laughs> until this year. There is always an opening ceremony, but that you, well, I guess technically the um, the World Fantasy Awards banquet is the closing ceremony. It technically is. There is always the judges panel about a half hour yeah. after that, uh, which is uh, which I did not get a chance to go to. No. But but the banquet really does seem uh, like a celebration. I think it's uh, I, and, and I think the awards this year were very interesting. Well, should, should we talk about it? Because part of the story of World Fantasy are the triumphs and the tears, and we can get to the tears in a little while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but shall we talk about the triumph? What did you think overall of the World Fantasy Awards winners for 2012, Gary K. Wolf? I was impressed. Uh, I th- there were some things that I knew better than others, and when you when you start really when you start talking about uh, artists and uh, well, I don't know anything about the artists, frankly. I mean, I know some of them, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but when you get to the major awards, let's start with uh, the, certainly the uh, the Life Achievement Awards, which we talked about before. Yes. I don't think anybody could argue with those. Oh, Lord, no, no. They're, they were obvious ones. The only quibble and qualm with Lifetime Achievement Awards these days is getting all the people recognized before it's too late. I mean, you know, there, there are, you know Peter Dickinson is still out there and writing. Mary Susan Stewart's Cooper. still alive. Susan Cooper. Right. <clears throat> these are all people who desperately deserve the award. So... But the other thing that was interesting was watching what um, I think a lot of people saw as a contest in the Best Novel Award. Yes. Uh, I think people saw that as a contest between George R. R. Martin and Joe Walton. Which, which is kind of interesting because it talks about the difference between the awards. Because for those who aren't aware of the details, Among Others and A Dance with Dragons were both up for the Hugo. And Among Others won the Hugo and Dance with Dragons came fifth. Yeah. I have no doubt that of the, on the ballot of Osama by uh, Lavi Tidhar, Those Across the River by Christopher Buhlman, uh, 112263 by King, the Martin and the Walton book, that the Martin and the King books were the uh, popular vote. I, I yes. had suspected that, among others, might win. There was that uh, nice thought about it becoming the first work ever to win the big three awards, that, you know, uh, Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy. But it didn't. The award went to Osama by Lavi Tidhar, who was, I think it is fair to say, shocked. I think it's rare it's rare that you see somebody winning an award who is literally speechless. Mm. He he was. I mean literally he was he was stunned. He told me after he told me afterwards that he he may be the one the one person that was honest enough with me to say he was really getting tired of my talking because the the more the banquet went on, the more nervous he was. <laughs> Finding the results, which meant that he must have thought he had a shot at it. I don't know. I, think, I know he was sick with nerves. I mean, almost sick with, with them, from what I heard. Yeah, he was just. Oh, and yeah, I'm sure that somewhere he will get around to sort of thanking all the people that he wants to. But certainly, it was a case of it, it's actually it's a weird thing because I understand why you you don't write remarks when you're up for an award, but what it does is it exposes this moment when you're up there and it's almost anticlimactic. Yeah, because it's like. You can't go, um, I got, uh, thank you, and then you walk away, and everyone's going, uh, all right, we were sort of timed for a speech, but thanks for that. But I'm, nobody, yeah, nobody really is looking forward to a long acceptance speech, and I no. think most people realize that. I mean, I remember, I remember when I was nominated, I had one wisecrack in mind, and I thought, I'll get that in, and <laughs> apart from that, I had a speech in mind at all. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
the um, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the patterns that we can discern over the years in World Fantasy Awards is that you can easily uh, identify which nominees are there by popular vote. Yes. And I'm almost certain it's George Martin and, and Steve King. Mm -hmm. You can also uh, assume on the basis of any number of conversations I've had with, with other World Fantasy judges that there is a – there's not a resentment against the popular vote because sometimes the popular vote wins. Sure. There is a sense. There is a definite sense among the judges that we are in no way bound by the popular vote. No, and you, and you're not. You're expressly told that you're not. Yes, um, exactly. I think that's a very good rule for these awards. Well, it, it is. I mean, it can occasionally, I guess, create a situation where there's a work that really never has a chance, but it gets to be nominated. But that's not a bad thing. Um, and then you, yeah, you do get these sort of like almost left field choices. I don't think you know, many people were p particularly picking uh, Levy, though I do know that uh, Joe Walton was very supportive of his winning. You she know. was very gracious about that. She was. She made a very good point that when she won her award for Tooth and Claw, it really jump-started her career. And this award, the third or fourth or fifth or whatever it is for among others, wouldn't really do anything to her career but might do a great deal to Levy's uh, career. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Who's, and and uh, Osama is a novel which I remember reviewing that when it came out in the PS edition. Is a novel which would not likely have won a popular award simply because it wasn't available in the mass yes, market edition. Absolutely, I, I think the mass market edition from Solaris has only just come out. So, exactly. um, yeah. So you know, I think it's a good thing. I think the other. So you a, go ahead. I was just saying, I think the other categories are interesting as well. Frankly, yeah, I wanted sense about one of the things that frequently happens on the World Fantasy Novel Ballot is that you have a novel that's completely out of left field. I don't think that was Osama because La Vita, I think what it was was this Christopher, Christopher Buellman novel, which I really didn't know anything about. No, me, me either. And I have to say that that's why I had wondered if it was going to win, actually, mm -hmm. because the, the King and the Martin were the obvious popular choices. The Waltons is quite a, a well-known book now. It's been very successful. So wow. you have two small, two two small titles, two not well known titles, and one almost completely unknown, and yes. that sort of has the the hallmark of being a judge's choice because juries like to do this; they like to find stuff themselves and promote it to, to the public at large, which is a great thing to do. But I think it, it's a good thing to do. I think what I think the pattern has has tended to be that that a book, a minor book, not a minor book, but a fairly obscure book, gets a champion. Yeah. And some juror says, you have to read this. And the other people read it, and it, it ends up impressing people so much that, mm -hmm. uh, that it comes out of left field. The year I was doing it, we gave a, uh, an award for collection to Maria Petrushevskaya, a Russian yes, writer. Yes, I remember. That was, as frankly, in my year, was championed by, by Kelly Link. Yes. I don't think have any problem saying that. And, when, and so all of the rest of the judges yep. said, okay, we'll look at it. And it was stunning. It was a terrific book. Yep. Well, look, I wouldn't be shocked to see Karen Tidback's Jagannath in serious contention next year. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that can sort of happen. Because if you're looking at collections, I mean, one of the things, uh, if we get down to that category for a second. Sure, yeah, we can skip ahead there, yeah. We can skip down there. It's interesting that all of the collections, every single one of the nominated collections was from a small press. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, no, it wasn't. You've got Ticonderoga. I'm looking oh, at. Oh, hang on. I was, I was, oh, damn. I was, I was looking at the anthology. Right? anthology. <laughs> See, I told you I was still jet lagged. No, you're, you're right. They are. Tachyon, Ticonderoga, Subterranean, Small Beer, and Tartarus. And of course, Tartarus, of course, who, who won the special award non professional. Yes. 
uh, which was always surprising. And I have to admit, I had not expected Tim Powers, the Bible repairman, and other stories to win, and I think it's fair to say Tim had not expected it to win either. Well, he had talked to us about this in, in, in one, of, one of the Phantom podcasts that we're going to talk about pretty soon. But I think part of it was he was concerned, and this is one of the other things that happens. You're concerned that people that are close to you are among the judges. And two of the judges, obviously, were, were James Blaylock and, and John Berline, yeah. uh, both of whom apparently, according to both Tim and, uh, and, 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 um, and Jim Blaylock, went out of their way to avoid appearing biased. Uh, but I can almost see how things work out this way. Yeah. Uh, the Lee book, it's great that it's nominated, but how yeah. many people outside of Australia have seen it? True, though that's not necessarily relevant. You only have to impress five people, Gary. Well, that's true. You have to impress five people. Uh, but and one of the problems we had the year I was uh, up was that a lot of books from Australia didn't get here until too late. Yeah. Um, one of the ones I remember, uh, we were thinking about the collection that... Um, uh, the Margot Lanigan story came from that became Sea Hearts. Well, this Margot story was called Sea Hearts. X6. Yeah, I was, and that and it turns out it might not have been eligible anyway, but the actual copies of the collection never arrived to the judges. Okay. So so my point is this. Uh, the Caitlin Kiernan collection, I think, is very deserving. I think it's a terrific collection. I think it's a landmark collection. It's a retrospective of one of our major writers who hasn't probably done her major work yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a reprint collection. It's a retrospective, which people tend to mm. be iffy about. Yeah. Uh, the Marine McHugh thing after the apocalypse essentially is science fiction. Yeah, that's fair call. That's fair call, mostly, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's, world fantasy tends to drift away from it. Reggie Oliver is one of those. This is one of the things that happens in world fantasy and a few other conventions. There's almost a symbolic horror collection, horror book in every category because yep. there is a residual world horror aspect to world fantasy. Sure. And in fact, as you said, I can now look up the ballot and see the various works that fit that, that criteria. I think so. I think that, but, um, so, so you end up with Tim Powers, who's a very popular writer, who had one, a rare book of short stories, I think his second book of short stories, who had a terrific novel out this year, which won't be not eligible the next year. Yep. And again, somebody that there's a lot of affection for Tim Powers among both the community and uh, and most judges. If I were to guess the popular vote on these two, it would be Tim Powers and Maureen McHugh. That would have been my guess as well. That would have been my guess as well. Um, but what you mean? Well, well done to Tim, I say. I mean, I don't. Want, we're taking a little too long. We have gone over this ballot before, so you have to be a little careful. Lingering too long, Gary. That's uh, true. We do. Uh, K.J. Parker uh, won the best novella for a small price to pay for Birdsong. I'm fascinated yes. that it won for a bunch of reasons. Um, the main reason I think I'm fascinated now is because of the Paul Kincaid article, which queried why couldn't it just be a historical? And one of the conversations, several of the conversations we had over the weekend centered around this whole issue of secondary world fantasy and <clears throat> whether, you know, what, how much magic and whatever else you need in a story to make it fantasy or not. And so I think it's an interesting affirmation of this kind of fiction that, again, it won the, the World Fantasy Award. I think that one of the things that happens, again, with judges, I don't know about the popular vote. Uh, the popular vote on this one is certainly Kath Catherine Valente, probably Catherine Valente, and possibly either Elizabeth Hand or K.J. Parker, I sure. think. Yeah. But the point is, there is a sense that a really, really good story, which has some kind of the affect of fantasy, we've talked about this 
uh, before, and we've, uh, as you're right, we had some great conversations about it this weekend. Uh, it has the affect, it means it feels like fantasy. Yeah. It takes place in a non-specific sort of European setting. Uh, is that enough to make it fantasy? And I think the, the, the result of the judges and the voting in this case was, whether it does or not, it was a really good story. True, but then as, as the purists would say, you know, it's still the World Fantasy Award. It must be a really good fantasy story. So the judges are making a statement by giving the World Fantasy Award to this story that it's a really good fantasy story. If I'm not mistaken, um, or horror. The Silence of the Lambs may have been in a World Fantasy ballot yep. once. Yep, I think um, that's true, yeah. So, so, so I think there's a certain history now. The Silence of the Lambs may get a pass because it's a horror story. Yep. But by and large, I, I, I think that... Um, I, th I think the message from, from uh, Small Price to Pay from Bird, for Birdsong may very well be that fantasy is not necessarily a question of a rigid definition, a material line that you have to cross to be fantastic, but rather a kind of general uh, ambience, a general sense of place, a sense of being in, in, in the story. Yeah. No, that, that could be it. And I know that the argument has been made that, you know, by placing something... Uh, in a secondary world that's not very magical still allows you to to in, interrogate other parts of a fa of a fantastic story or fantastical story yeah and, uh, and, and that the, ma the magic can uh, too much well, over it, magic ma magic can detract from the story that or and what the author's trying to magic. examine the point is if you have you have a, a world which permits magic a world which implicitly permits magic but the story doesn't require magic in other words if we're in an alternate Europe anything could happen Yep. That does not mean that anything fantastic has to happen. No, that's true. That's true. So, and so I was. Well, hang on, I was just going to say, of course, uh, I should say that I was the person who got to accept this award. So I, I did. I trudged yes. up from the back of the room, uh, later to be mocked by Genevieve Valentine. Hello, Genevieve, who does a very affecting impression of me walking up from the back of the room. I have to tell you. <laughs> well, and you, 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 you did have a procession, processional demeanor if i may say so i was trying to hold my pants up <laughs> <laughs> you know the little thing in the side of the pants because in the tuxedo pants had just gone pop and i'm going like, okay i'm just gonna keep my hands in my pockets i'm gonna walk up slowly because this is not going to work out well if i don't but it, it worked out fine and i was delighted and one of the nice things actually is i think it seems quite likely that kj will come on the podcast in the coming months and talk to us about the work that, that, that she does that would be very exciting, and we can look forward to that. Yeah. And it's, uh, um, and and it was a very gracious uh, acceptance speech as well that you read. I made it up on the spot, Gary. Oh, you didn't <laughs> read it. You made it up on the spot. Yeah, because okay. KJ didn't actually send a speech. It was really gracious. Okay. <laughs> so 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 much for novella. Okay, just going through that. Short again. story we've got to touch on because. There's a couple things about it. There's some great stories in this um, in the category. The Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu won the award and was well-deserved. I don't think anybody second-guessed it, though certainly any of the other four stories would have been terrific uh, winners. The fascinating... Ken, also, uh, Ken Liu also has a trifecta. He, In fact, well, this is what I was going to say. The fascinating thing about the Ken Liu story, The Paper Menagerie, is, it, well, is that it also was up for the, the, the trifecta, the, 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 the big three win, and it's done it. No one even noticed in the room, but Ken Lewis now, uh, his pet story, The Paper Menagerie, is the only work in the history of the field to win the Hugo, the Nebula, and the World Fantasy. Other writers have done it, but no work has done it before. No That's the same work. Yeah. 
And Joe, Joe Walton could have. Yes. Um, I think I think the issue is um, that I think this is becoming more possible because the Ken Liu story, which is a fantasy story, there is no getting around it. And in previous decades, if not previous years, wouldn't have been considered for the Hugo or the Nebula at all. Possibly, yeah. They have been much more open to fantasy stories recently. It's a terrific story. It's a very affecting story. Uh, it's a story which I think earns its World Fantasy Award. But you're right. It's it's, it's a record that had I noticed that night, um, you could have come up and told me or something. I you didn't. Made, I didn't even like, realize until I got back to my room afterwards, and I suddenly went, "Hang on a minute. That was up for that won the Hugo, and then did it win the Nebula as well? It did." So, so yeah, I, I don't think anyone was particularly aware of it in the room. I don't. I'm not sure even. Ken was overtly Ken aware of it, though he wasn't there. But, but uh, the one thing I do wonder is is the fact that we have two works, and I'm not sure if ever before we've had two works on the same ballot up for the big three, uh, if it actually represents a narrowing of focus on works of excellence in the field. Wasn't Lily Yu's story up for all three? Uh, it may have been. I certainly not won the... It won one of them. I think she got the Nebula. Yeah. She she was nominated, if I'm not mistaken, she yeah. was nominated for the Hugo, but won the Campbell Award instead. Yeah, yeah. Sure, didn't. So, yeah. so uh, there you go. Uh, and then for Best Anthology, Anne Vandermeer and Jeff Vandermeer took home the award for The Weird, the biggest anthology ever published in the history of the world, bar none. Um, I think there's something to be said for gigantic anthologies or definitive anthologies. I mean, a couple of years ago, Peter Straub got it for the American Fantastic Tales, which is a two-volume. Yeah. And by the way, books that size ought to be in two or three volumes. So that's just <laughs> preference. Or ebook, because uh, it's a three-quarters of a million-word book. That said, yeah. a very very well-deserved. I mean, they did an enormous amount of work on it, and I, I don't think anyone was anything other than delighted for them. I certainly was, and I know you were too. Right. And that just leaves a quick touchdown, the best artist, John Coulthart. Who actually works with the Vandermeers on a number of projects? He works with the Vandermeers, and so there was a kind of it was a good night for the Vandermeers in that sense. And um, Eric Lane won the special special award professional for publishing as Daedalus books. Mm -hmm. So a, a good ballot all round, I think, Gary. Not bad. And the non-professional went to. Oh, you're going to have to remind me here. The non-professional, as we said earlier, went to Tartarus Press to right. Raymond Russell and Rosalie Parker. So I think there's a lot of recognition going on, and I think there's a lot of attention going on to, um, uh, to what's going on in small presses. I think the judges uh, are aware of things and pay attention to things and have access to things that the general voting population doesn't. And I think yeah. that becomes crucial when you get down to categories like collection, professional, non-professional, and so forth and so on. I was um, delighted uh, that our good friend Elisa Krasenstein could hope hand out the awards because uh, it was last year that she won yes. uh, this tradition I'm trying to institute in world fantasy. It may work or not, if whoever, whichever winners show up from last year. But I remember uh, the year before last when 12th Planet, Planet Press was was mentioned by me as a possible candidate. No one had heard of it. Yes. And last year it won. So there's a sense that small presses actually get on the radar of the judges from year to year. Yes, and they I do. That's very healthy sign. I think it's a very good thing. I, I, I absolutely do. I think it was great to see uh, Elisa up there helping present the awards. I think it was a great thing that um, the, small, the small presses get recognized the way they do. I think they do very important work for the in the field, and I think it's very important that they get this kind of encouragement. I think it's a great strength of the, of the awards. I should say there's an announcement that we could have made, Gary, 
and that was with the presentation of the Best Novel Award on Sunday afternoon last weekend. Award season was over. There is a part of me that wants to settle down for a long winter's nap. <laughs> well, yes, yes, you're in the right part of the world. Where I am, it's summer is coming, but yes. To, to, to go and oh, have a... Drink, over, drink, I mean, drink a uh, glass of red and hibernate till till summer till it starts. Yeah. Well, no, no, I'm I'm not able to quite sit it out. I mean, between now and the end of the year, I have to sort of wrangle the readers for the Crawford Award. Yep. And we have some interesting candidates for that. I'm on the uh, jury for the Tiptree Award, and they're the other jurors are thinking we should be talking about it now, and I'm thinking. It's, it's, it's months away. Why talk about it now? <laughs> well, actually, you have an advantage, advantage slash disadvantage, Gary, and that is that both of us are about have to have to dive into a process that I don't think I've ever looked forward to with less relish than I am this year. Which is more to do, it's just to do with me, not anything else. Which is the recommended reading process. Well, I guess that's what I mean. Uh, that uh, that some of us who are more embedded in the field than we need to be, I suppose. Uh, are, we're done with the award season in terms of going places, yes, we are. but we're beginning, we're beginning the process that will eventually lead to a Locus Award, uh, and it will eventually lead to a Crawford Award, eventually lead to a Tip Tree. Um, the, uh, so, so to some extent, award season is never over. I think of the award season as two seasons. One is reading, and two is handing out stuff. Yes. And we're going into the reading season. Yes, we are. I'm not ready to go into the reading season, but I have to, <laughs> um, because there's recommended reading to do at the same time as I'm finishing up the best of the year. I was mm -hmm. just working on that this morning, sending out a few more contracts for stories. I've got a oh, good chunk of the 34 stories that will go into the best of the year contracted now, and we'll send out a few more today, chase a few things up, and I'm getting sort of slowly getting there with the help of Marianne, who's doing some of the work in the background on it. Uh, and the, as soon as I get through that, well, that will lead into the best of the year. I kind of have, as a good faith thing, I always try and finish the, guess, the best of the year before I start compiling the basis for the local sh short fiction list. Because I don't think it's a reasonable thing to uh, ask the other year's best editors to engage in conversation with me about the best fiction of the year until my book is finished. Well, I think that's true. And I think once you've got it finished, and you can start talking about it. But one of the things that becomes very important in voting... Uh, for both the Hugos and the World Fantasy, turns out to be the content of the volume that you do, the volume Gardner does, the volume Rich Eisen was doing another one, and the volume that David. Yes. Uh, I don't know if David's doing that by himself this year or not. I'm not I, 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 I don't know. I know he's doing it for Tor rather than Harper, but that's all I know. Okay. Uh, and he's just doing the science fiction book now. The fantasy book is finished. Mm -hmm. so, so, yes, there's that. So it's, it's going to be a busy time. Uh, and that will keep us working hard, and we'll probably touch on it again in, in, in probably far more interesting podcasts than this one, I hope, Gary. Well, once you start, interesting, once you start reading things, I mean, uh, every once in a while we have to stop giving out awards and start reading books to give out awards to the following year. It's much and easier just we... to keep giving out the awards, Gary. Well, <laughs> our future podcast, shall we talk about our podcast experience? And we have to, time? we have to. It's heartbreaking. How my heart it's breaks when we sing this song. World Fantasy Convention was to be one of the great podcasting conventions we went to. I mean, we did it. We've only really been to one convention together before when we were podcasting, which was Reno. 
Mm-hmm. And as you'll recall, we recorded very, very enjoyable podcasts with Ian McDonald, with Joe Walton, with Kim Stanley Robinson, and with Alistair Reynolds. And because of our heavy work schedule this coming Christmas, we thought we would record a whole batch of podcasts at, in Toronto. And we sat down, I think we opened an, on the Wednesday afternoon, we did a podcast with Guy Gavriel Kay, which was terrific, and it was talked about the whole secondary world fantasy issue, the whole, you know, um, respecting history and characters in history. That was great. The ethics of historical fiction. All that, yep. That evening we went out to dinner and then came back to dinner and started the first ever rum cast using rum provided by Karen Lord, where we spoke to uh, Ellen Clagis and Robert Shearman about writing short fiction, something that Ellen subsequently described as the best conversation she's ever had about writing. The following day we sat down with Graham Joyce and actually reprised some of similar ground to what we discussed with with, uh, Guy Kay, but this time talking about uh, Graham's new book, Some Kind of Fairy Tale, as opposed to Guy's forthcoming book, River of Stars. Mm -hmm. Uh, That night late, I think we sat down with Jim Blaylock and Tim Powers to talk about their work. Yeah. And the following day, we recorded a long podcast with Joe Walton about C.J. Cherry and the case for her becoming a grandmaster, something which we will still get to talk about somehow, I'm sure. And I think we came away feeling very satisfied with the work we were done. I felt that those podcasts represented some of the very best work we'd ever done together, actually. Certainly, they, were le- they were legendary. They were terrific. They were great. They were, they were podcasts for the ages. And then they became mythical because they're lost. Because when I synced my iPad back to my computer, iTunes deleted them all. Well. Um, that was pretty sickening. <laughs> we were both devastated by this yesterday, and there's no reason not to be devastated by it because there were great conversations. I certainly don't regret having had the conversations. Oh, Lord, I'm, no, no. They were the highlight of the convention, really. I mean, I had, well, one of the things about doing a podcast is that you get – I had not – met Robert Sherman before. Mm-hmm. I, I read, we went to dinner with him the night before the podcast. Uh, I'd read a couple of uh, volumes of his short stories. And he was just utterly delightful. Yes. And sheer accident of Ellen Clay just being out to dinner with us that night uh, led to a podcast I don't think anyone, any one of us would have thought of. Yes. Let's put Clay and Sherman together on a podcast. They hit it off brilliantly. Um uh, I didn't know how it was going to go. I I thought I was being mischievous when I put it together, but um, uh, because I I was deliberately mischievous about it, but I didn't anticipate that it would be as successful a conversation as it was, and it was a very successful one, very interesting people to talk to. Which which, which says something about programming both podcasts and conventions, I guess, is that sometimes things happen happen by accident that are just serendipitous. Yes, Um, I think so. it's, It's a great combination. When we were recording our podcast with Graham Joyce, who has agreed to do another one with us. Yes, we will reprise, I think, three of the conversations we will attempt to reprise. Mm. And, um, but there was, we get sometimes on these rare occasions, well, once a year occasions when we get to record podcasts live, we have a few people who come in and and we were talking to Graham, Peter Straub was there and Stacey Haynes was there and Ben Percy. Yes. And. And they all enjoyed it as much as we did. And, and Ben, who, had, who was a very respected literary writer in New York who had never been to a world fantasy before, said afterwards that was the best panel discussion he'd been to at the entire convention, uh, which it may or may not have been. I don't know which ones had been to. But the point is, 
that there is a kind of um, sense of discovery you get in these podcasts that, uh, that you never know whether it's going to work or whether it's not going to work. So we'll be able to recreate most of these. Not well, No, let me, let me put it this way. Not recreate. But yeah, we, we will... We can revisit them. Revisit them. We can reprise them. My my, my new thought in terms of Clagis and Sherman, in terms of Graham Joyce, in terms of um, Blaylock and and Powers, is that we regard those podcasts as rehearsals for the real one. That's a lovely idea. Uh, I I would, I mean, from a personal perspective, I do send out my apologies to all of the people who were with us when we recorded those podcasts they've all been kind and gracious and i think they had a similar experience they all love the conversations and are sorry that they were lost uh however you know we will live and learn we will do more to make future podcasts more secure and it has led to me uh thinking about a, a, an offer that i would almost make openly to future conventions that we're both at i was so su- happy and surprised with the quality of them that i would be happy to do a daily live interview podcast at a convention that we're both at. Oh, that would be that would be absolutely delightful to do that sort of thing because uh, the, 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 we had the opportunity to do that. We should uh, we should acknowledge that Peter Hallis had found a room for us. Our problem yes. was getting our own schedule straight. The timing was bad. They want they wanted us to do it in the evening, which would have been fine, I guess. But the whole problem with uh, World Fantasy is it's built around social commitments, and so our evenings were full. I mean, I was joking with somebody on Twitter yesterday that I could tell you what half of my social engagements for Next World Fantasy will be already. I imagine that's true, and uh, I imagine it would be true for me if I thought about it for very much. But the point is that between between our own schedules and the schedules of various guests, you have a limited number of, of uh, hours in the day. Yeah. Generally, the sense is we were not on the programming um, no. For various reasons this time around, which meant we were stuck pretty much with the dinner hours or after dinner. Yes, yeah. And uh, even with that, we, even at that, we managed to get five done. So. Yes, uh, and, and actually, if we'd pu- if, if we'd pushed, we could have lost six or seven. Um, <laughs> you know, so you can look at it. But I mean, I would be very happy to make an op- open offer to revisit this kind of thing in Brighton, which is the next time we know we'll be together. Mm-hmm. And. Um, Maybe if we end up at Redicon or ICFA, we, we could we could do something as well. That would be fun. But it was a great convention. It was great to get to talk about stuff. It was great to do the, have those conversations. Um, and it will be interesting to to complete them when, where we can. Well, I mean, I think it, I, I think what we do, boasting a little bit, since we have just committed a major catastrophe on on uh, the world of podcasting media. Yeah. Um, there is there is a room at all these conventions, and this is a, a, a not a suggestion that we necessarily be allowed to podcast at conventions, but a programming suggestion. And it's one which I actually will give credit to Farrah Mendelssohn for. Yeah. If you put a group of interesting people together, you have an interesting conversation. Yes. Uh, that is probably a more rational way of pro- programming a convention than coming up with what you think is a cute topic and just dumping whoever wants to be on the panel on the panel. I think it is, though. I think it's it's a little bit courageous to ask a convention to do it because you're asking them to trust you, right? They're asking you to say, yeah. you know, oh, well, they'll be interesting enough. And when you've got people – I mean, okay, let's look ne- at next year. China Mieville is the Toastmaster or a Master of Ceremonies or whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome, and he's brilliant. So mm-hmm. we could sit down and talk with him. But if I was a programmer, I could sit, sit there and kind of go, well, do I need the Cood Street podcast to do this? I'll get China. 
And yeah. China can be interesting by himself because he is a very interesting man to talk to. And so it is its accidental chemistry and then finding out that it really does work. And I think you can do something really substantial. Um, and it'll be interesting somewhere to try it when we're together. I don't know where it will be, but somewhere we will do well, it again. As I say, this is not simply a matter of, of, of programming a podcast. It is a question of programming. And I, I, I do give credit to Farah for being one of the better programmers of a convention I've ever seen. Yep. Because part of what that's, goes that's on... That's Farah Mendelssohn, yeah. Farah Mendelssohn. Is that, and this happens quite a bit at, at ReaderCon in um, or near Boston, which I hope you can come to at some point. If you if you put, let's say, uh, let me let me suggest, I don't know, an obvious connection. If you put uh, Peter Straub and Ellen Datlow and Caitlin Kernan on a panel, you'll get a very good discussion. You will, uh, because they're all very articulate people. They're all very literary people. They're all very smart about what they do. Um, if you put together, uh, as we did, accidentally, Ellen Clagis and Robert Sherman, you don't know what you'll get. No. And what you do, I think it was brilliant. I think so, too. So understanding the chemistry of, of people and knowing people well enough to know what would happen if we mix this with this is what makes for a very interesting discussion. Yeah, and I think the other one thing that we do offer to it is that we offer, in effect, two moderators and guiders of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Which I and think, chances, and chances are that one of us will know something. Fifty-fifty chance, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and able to sort of hand off and keep things going a little bit. I mean, some people don't don't need it. I mean, there was a conversation at the 2010 Worldcon in Melbourne, where Stan Robinson and Robert Silverberg sat down and just, you know just talked to each other, and that was always mm-hmm. going to be fascinating. But you know, it's it's nice to have a little bit of structure to these things. And yeah, look, I, without belaboring it any more. Uh, it would be interesting, interesting to do it, and I think it would have given us, you know, a, well, gave us potentially a batch of really interesting podcasts, which sadly we don't get to present. But you know, we'll, we'll find out what the next batch are, and we'll move forward. Well, I mean, we could try to reconstruct the podcast, but I don't think there's much point about it. Um, yeah. uh, the, the point is that when you get interesting groups of people in a synergistic relations that relationship, things emerge that you did not necessarily expect hmm. to emerge. I mean, obviously. For example, Robert Sherman, who I had not met before this weekend, and who is now one of my favorite people. He's great. He's a lovely man. A lovely man, a brilliant short story writer, somebody who is still coming out from under the shadow of having been a Doctor Who writer. Um, yes. Which people would not consider to be a shadow, by the way. Well, I mean, if you realize that he's a playwright, he's a playwright and poet who became a Doctor Who writer, who now is a vastly prolific short story writer. Mm-hmm. Engaged in the most insane short story project of 2012. That's bizarre. You need to explain that. <laughs> Last year, Robert Shearman published a new short story collection. Everything, everyone, everything is so so special. I think it was called. And there's going to be a hundred copy limited edition of the book. He felt that for what the money the people were paying, they should get more than just a signature sheet. So he offered to write an original story for every single person who bought each of the hundred copies of the limited edition. I think he intended to, to do a little short short of maybe a couple hundred words. Right. He, he's, ended, he's ended up doing sig- significant serious short stories. Has written about 400,000 words of short fiction so far. And isn't done yet. At, at a rate of one a week for 70 weeks. And he's, he's, not, he's not worked out the year yet? He's not finished the year yet? No. He'll be going into the middle, early next year sometime. Well, okay, this is... I mean, I, 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 we mentioned this earlier, and it's an absolutely astonishing 
insane, uh, irrational way of approaching things, which on the one hand strikes me as being the enthusiasm of a guy who's discovered he loves writing short stories. And on the other hand, sounds like something Harlan Ellison would have thought of in 75. It has, it's a stunt. Yes. Uh, and that's what makes it seem like a Harlan thing to do. Harlan would, who was a very substantial, gifted and intelligent writer, nonetheless was prone to sort of little bits of stunt kind of things like that. And so, and so, okay. Yes. One of Harlan's books, um, speaking of that, which reminds me of this, was a, um, a, a book yeah. called Mindless, in which he had seen a collection of paintings by a Polish yeah. surreal painter Jacek. named Yerka. Jacek Yerka. And, yeah. Yes, Jacek Yerka, and decided he was going to write a short story for each one of these paintings. And it was a way of getting the paintings. The paintings are marvelous. Yes. And the short stories range from really being pretty good to being little prose sketches. I mean, yeah. Harlan was actually in good shape writing that. But again, it's the sort of thing that was a gimmick. It was a gimmick like, Very I'm going to write for every, for every painting here. I think what happened with Robert, though, is I think, to put words in his mouth, I think what started as a gimmick idea became something much more substantial without him necessarily intending it to, to do so. And so his, you know, I think it'll be his next major big book is going to be a compilation of these stories presented in a particularly interesting way. So, I think it is. So that was an interesting, un- un- unexpected thing. So. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not accusing Robert of, of being a gimmick writer at all. I think he no. came up with what was clearly a gimmick at the time, which got away with him, and now he's writing a lot of serious stories. But I, as I, I, I persist in my belief, we should actually be talking to Robert about this. Yes. Uh, that part of part of part of the reason for this is it's just absolutely having fallen in love with the writing short stories. Yes. So, I think we should begin to wind up, Gary. We're, we're about ten minutes out from the end of our usual hour, but we have five and a half hours of dead podcast in the past, and I think we're casting around for something to talk about in amongst my jet lag. <laughs> well, I think your jet lag should be honored, and you should have an actual chance to sort of catch up with your um, um, biological rhythms, get them back into uh, sync. And so so, at some point, yeah. The funny thing is, had we been able to actually do a live podcast or something on stage or something which we could have broadcast as we were doing it, we might have done that. But as everyone who's been to a convention knows, you can't really control your schedule that much. You depend no. on other schedules, you depend on serendipity, you depend on getting people together. Uh, but by and large, let's assume that sometime within the next few weeks, people will be able to hear a conversation. With Ellen Clages and, and Robert Sherman. I hope so, yes. Some sort with Graham Joyce. Uh, there are technical difficulties that prevent us from doing some of the others that we might have done. Yeah. By and large, it was a sad moment when we lost. But but on the other hand, we have these great lost manuscripts, the lost podcast, <laughs> the, the, the the audio tapes of H.P. Lovecraft that he made in the you know in, in, in Robert Block's basement in 1937. Or, it's, it's something like that. So, something like that. Almost exactly sort of like that, I think, covers it. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, I think we'll wind up for, 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 for this week. And I will see you back in, in, in the Waldorf room. We've got to come up with a better name. Uh, back to Cood Street Motel 6 and within weeks. Now that we've been out to Toronto and seen what the grown-up world looks like, We're returning to familiar digs. We are indeed. 
<sighs> All those sad little jokes I made that are lost, Gary. I don't think you can go on kicking yourself about lost podcasts. I think we need I know, to think of, but you know. need to think of this as a legend in the making. Absolutely. No, I'm not kicking myself. I'm just looking back and I'm thinking, just the look on everybody's face when I turned around and said, what was it? Um, the Cood Street Podcast, brought to you by Ben Gay for Men. It was fantastic. <laughs> Everyone was like, you had, you, had, what? you had some great moments. The introductions were unlike the ones we've seen before. You had... Certainly succeeded in throwing some of our guests, including Graham Joyce, a little bit off balance by that introduction. But it's not a bad thing, it, it, because it really makes you re rethink what the conversation you're going to have. It, it makes it a bit unpredictable, which is good. I think with it, when this works, it's, it, it's, it's the unpredictability that is its strength. Well, I completely agree, and I hope that within the next few weeks we'll be able to do some more unpredictable things. I look forward to it. I hope that the unpredictable things we do do not involve losing future podcasts. That would be awesome. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. But this one's in the can just about. It'll go yeah, up today or tomorrow, and next week, something new and exciting. Uh, before, before, before you sign off, I should mention that it's at least as much my fault as yours that we didn't do a backup recording while we were doing it. Because my computer was there. We could have. I could have it's thought true. of it. It's true. We won't make the mistake again of not making a backup recording of everything. I mean, obviously, what people in the background here don't need to know as we ramble through today's rambly podcast is mm. that we back up always now, and we always do double record. We just didn't do it on the road, which was probably a mistake. But, ah, look, it's, it's a mistake. That, that, but, that's how it went. And we will check in next week, then. We will indeed. Until then. Until then. Farewell. This is the Cood Street Podcast from Motel 6 and... Whatever continent you're in. The Cood Street Podcast, safely backed up for posterity. <laughs> Good night, John. Good night. <laughs> and I think we made it. Let me just see that I've uh, got the actual... You're very welcome, Jessica. Very welcome. Okay, so what yeah. see... Yeah, let me just exit that. You're all done. And then... Yeah, of course it has, and then I can do this.